Well, last time we discussed the proper attitude of a Christian as he goes through suffering. We acknowledge that suffering is real. There's no point in saying you're not going to have hard times as a Christian because Jesus said in the world, you will have trouble. But the proper attitude of a Christian is hope, that we believe that at the end there is a reason and a destination towards which we are going. But everybody says it's important to have hope. Everybody says, oh, we got to have hope, got to keep the faith, and, you know, faith in what? I can just have hope, that's not good enough, I need a reason. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you are hoping for something and you don't get it, is that the kind of hope we have? Well, no. But how can we know that? Well, today we're going to see that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, not only gives us hope, but helps us along through life. God doesn't just dangle something ahead of you and say, don't worry, heaven's going to be really great. He's right there along the way helping you. Did you know that? God takes an active hand in your daily life. Not just at the start and the finish. It's not like you're running a marathon and God's right there at the starting line to say, all right, go, I'm believing you, you can do it. And he's waiting at the end for you and the rest of it's up to you. No, no, no. God is there every step of the way. Philippians 1 verse 6, you all know this one. Paul wrote, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it was God who began the work. It's God who's going to bring it to completion. So God started this. He's going to finish it. So in your life, there may be difficulty. And I'll go ahead and say there will be difficulty. If anybody ever promised you that if you got saved, you'd never have any problems again, I'm terribly sorry they lied to you. But there's something better than that. Because even in your pain, the Holy Spirit is doing everything he can to help you and to use those things to conform you to the image of Jesus. God is at work in you, and God never fails. Amen? So if God is working on you, it's going to happen. So if you are in Christ, our title today, Your Destiny is Certain. So let's take a look at this. Verses 26 through 27 to begin, and and then it'll build. It starts with this really practical, encouraging lesson, and, and then it just builds to that great conclusion that we've already read. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for. Any amens to that one? As we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let's look at this. Likewise, this is a unique conjunction Paul uses here. It's hosautos in Greek. Don't worry about it. The only point there is it's kind of uncommon. But what he's trying to do is look at the last thing he said and bring us to the next conclusion, pointing back to the fact that we ought to have hope and patience in our sufferings, the last thing he talked about. So you could say, likewise, what he's saying is, that's true, but not only that, or more than that, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we have weakness. We have struggles. We have suffering, right? We're waiting for it with patience. We talked about groaning last time, remember? Groaning for the redemption of the world. So he says, not only do you need to keep on hoping, don't worry, it's going to get better. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So you're not alone in this fight. You have a helper. And that's, in fact, what the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said that, right? In John 14, verses 16 and 17, 
Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Different Greek word, but it's the same idea. Another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The disciples were upset at the Last Supper because Jesus was going to heaven. And he says, you're not going to see me anymore. And they began to be sad about that, of course. But Jesus said, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to ask the Father. He'll send you another helper. I'm going to send you another helper. And well, who is that? Who is this paraclete? Maybe you've heard that word, that coming alongside to help one. He said, the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit says, yeah, this is something the world doesn't know anything about. There's a lot of parallels to Christian doctrine in the rest of the world because there's general revelation that God has given to everybody. Nobody knows anything about the Holy Spirit except for the Christian. The Holy Spirit, as we know, is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, very God, just as Jesus is. He is personal. So this is not God's force, you know, that he sends out. As we're going to see in this passage, the Holy Spirit does very personal things that only people can do. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to send you the, the, the force of God. I'm going to send you the personal presence of God. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He says he dwells with you because God is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. Jesus said his job is to draw men to salvation, to convict them of sin. If you've ever been sharing the gospel with somebody and you can just tell that they're under conviction, the Holy Spirit's working on them. I've preached messages before that I've thought this is, this is just not working. <laughs> how, how can I get out of this as quickly as possible? But then I'll look and then I'll see somebody in tears or just getting all revved up and excited. I'm like, wow, that has nothing to do with me. That's the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us. He's working on us. We're not alone. The world is not just physical. The Holy Spirit of God is there. But he said he will be in you. And we've talked about this at great length, that when you become a Christian, it says the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And you become a temple of God's Holy Spirit. What made the temple so special? God was there. But the Holy Spirit come to dwell within us. So like Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, now we are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Jesus is in us. We've talked about this at length. He regenerates our soul. He gives you that, that jump start, that shock to the heart that puts your soul back to life. And he's constantly working to shape you into the image of Jesus, to work on your soul. And not only that, there's a third thing that the Spirit does. He comes upon us in power. We see this in the book of Acts. Jesus had given the Holy Spirit to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of John. But in the book of Acts, they were baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's when cowardly Peter became the bravest evangelist the world had ever seen. That's when men and women that were nobody began to be used by God to do these incredible miracles. Where Paul would be standing while Barnabas is sharing the Gospel to this one guy. And there's his, his witch wizard counselor, like whispering in his ear, and Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and struck the man with blindness right in the middle of the, of the court. This is what happens. He dwells with us. He is in us as Christians, and he comes upon us in the moment for power and for service. He's our helper. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. You're not alone. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans, right? But what is he talking about specifically in this passage? What does he mean by saying the Spirit helps us in our weakness? He says, for, right? How does he help us? And that, this is pretty cool, I think. The word for help there is sunanti lambanomai. 
Remember that. It's on the quiz. You're going to know that. <laughs> Why does that matter? Well, let me break this down. So soon, the first part means with, right? Like synergy or synthesis, soon. And then anti, you're that like anti-something. You're against something. So with and against. And to lambanomai means to pick something up or to carry it. So if you are carrying something with somebody and against somebody, it's like, I'm trying to pick up this couch, grab an end. We're together, but we're against. Do you see how this works? And that might be pushing it a little far. But how does the Holy Spirit come aside the heavy burden of your life and grab an end to help you carry the burden, to walk you through life? Specifically, he says he helps us in our weakness. And that weakness is our ignorance concerning prayer. That's the specific thing he's talking about here. He says, we don't know what to pray for. And this is interesting. It's actually a question here. He says, but we don't know what do we pray. We don't know what to pray. It's an interrogative word he uses. This is, we don't know what to pray for, and we don't know how to pray. So even if you know the request you're supposed to offer up, well, what words do I use? And then you say, well, I might know the right words, but I don't really know what to pray for. This situation is so big and so complicated. It's like, okay, Lord, do I, do I pray that you, you give the church peace again? Or do I pray that you continue the persecution so that the church is purged and more people are saved? Right? Do I pray that they're healed? Or do I pray that the doctors know just what to do in the moment? We don't know what to pray for. Or we're, we're looking at a situation and say, God, I know what we need, but I just can't articulate it. That's our weakness in prayer. Very often we have overconfidence when it comes to prayer. And I'm careful how I say that because you ought to be confident when you pray. The Bible tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. But sometimes we come and say, I know just what I need, and I'm going to stand here and harangue God until he gives it to me. Now, you know I love bold prayers, and I think we all have to be more bold in our prayers, but you do need to have an acknowledgement. You really don't know what to pray for. You don't have God's perspective. You can't see all the pieces. Have you ever asked for something? And I mean really asked, on your knees, begging God. And then later on you look back and you go, whew, I'm so glad he didn't give me that. You ever pray, fellas? You ever pray for that girl to finally go out with you? Lord, she's the, she's the one I know it. God, I'm asking you in Jesus' name. And then a year or two later you're like, man, that would have been a disaster. God knew just what he was doing. If we want to make it a little more serious, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Father, if it is possible, remove the cup from me. Jesus in the garden said, I don't want to be nailed to a cross. Have my back flayed open and people pull my beard out and make fun of me. But if this is what we've got to do, not my will, but yours be done. Even right there, Jesus in his flesh is acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is the one that knows what ought to be prayed for. But look at this. We don't know what to pray for, but how does the Spirit help us in that weakness? The Spirit himself, personal pronoun, intercedes for us. Underline that, will you? The Holy Spirit intercedes, which means prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays for you. In fact, in verse 34, it's also going to say that Jesus Christ intercedes for you. And this is kind of weird. I can even feel it in the room. That's a little weird, like, okay. How does that work? Just, just accept it first. The Holy Spirit prays for you. Your constant prayer partner is the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you. It's very important that you recognize the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Because if you think, yeah, 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 okay, God, God's with me, whatever. No, no. You've got a constant friend and companion who lives within you, knows everything about you, and prays for you. 
The Spirit here is clearly the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, and yet He is distinct from the Father as He prays to the Father. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, Jesus prayed to the Father, didn't He? I just talked about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We all said, oh, yes, Lord, amen. But then we say the Holy Spirit prays to the Father, and we go, that doesn't seem right. Well, that's how the Trinity works. That there is distinction in the threeness of God. And we, as, as Western Christians, tend to emphasize the oneness of God, sometimes to the exclusion of the threeness of God, because we don't want to be polytheists. But we have to be very, very clear about this. God is one and three. The Spirit prays to the Father. This is one of those passages, if you don't believe in the Trinity, this is going to make no sense to you. But He prays for us with groanings. There's that word. With groanings too deep for words. I like the way the ESV puts that. This is alaletas, or unspoken. With unspoken words. Isn't that an oxymoron, right? Groanings, that word that we saw, creation is groaning. We are groaning. And the Spirit is groaning. With utterings too deep for words. His secret prayers. The things that we can't articulate in words. Have you ever had a prayer that... You just can't put it in words. Some, some people are really articulate and elegant, and they can just put everything to words, and it's remarkable, and that's why we have people like that. But then sometimes you're just, I, I can't even put this in words, and you feel like you're just groaning to the Lord. But it's even deeper than that, because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what needs to be prayed for and knows how to groan to the Father. And I will say briefly, when he says groaning with too deep for words, this is very often used uh, as a description as the, of the gift of tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues. I speak in tongues. I'm pro-tongues. But 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, do all speak in tongues? Rhetorical question, no, is the answer. So can this be related to that? I think so. Because the word tells us that when we pray in the Spirit, we pray in tongues, our minds don't know what we're saying but our, our tongues are speaking. The Spirit receives that. So I think this can be one of the ways that we partner with the Lord. And I will say, if you speak in tongues, you don't know exactly the words you're saying, but you usually have a pretty good sense of what you're pouring out to the Lord. The Lord gives you that. But I don't think that this is exclusively that, because it's clear the one groaning here is not us, but the Spirit, right? And, and you're not channeling the Spirit of God when you speak in tongues. Some people think that. that you're, it's like there's a your body's taken over and you're like, no, I'm not. No, no, he, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, 1 Corinthians says. And it says, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So it's not ecstatic prophecy. This is praying in a language that the spirit gives you utterance. But the spirit groans right along with us. The Lord can receive your prayers even if all you can say is, oh God, you, don't, you know what to pray for. Or maybe you don't, but you're just saying, help, Lord. Lord, help. God goes, I understand what you mean by that, because the Spirit is right there groaning right alongside you. Ephesians 6, 18 and Jude verse 20 both tell us to pray in the Spirit. That doesn't just mean speaking in tongues, because we don't all speak in tongues. Pray alongside, with, in harmony with the Spirit of God who dwells in you. Get in tune with what He's saying. He knows your situation better than anybody else. He knows your heart Better than you know your own heart. You ask for things, and the Lord's like, that's not what you need. We've even known friends of ours that, that tell us, what I, this is what I really need. And we're like, that's, that would not be good for you. You know what? If you got that money, 
you'd drink it right up. So no, I'm not going to give that to you. Lord, you've got to give me the money. And instead, the Spirit's like, no, what you need is to be broken. So this groaning, what you're groaning for is actually to be made right with the Lord, even though you don't realize it. So the Spirit takes what you pray and communicates it to God with the appropriate and accurate request. And say, okay, so does God, is God able to sort through those unspoken groanings? Is God able to hear what the Spirit says? Oh, well, of course He is. Look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts, that's God. The Lord is the one who searches our hearts. The idea is He knows everything. Knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So the Spirit, He just said, is alaletas. These are words that are not words. But God searches hearts. So He knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Note the Spirit of God has a mind. He's not just some ethereal, floaty force thing. He knows the heart of the Spirit. And the Spirit knows your heart. So God knows your heart. You say, well, God knows everything. Yes, but the mechanism that is revealed to us here in Scripture is the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, communicating all of that inner data to the Lord. I'm going to read a passage here. This is so important in our knowledge of the Holy Spirit, and it's related to this one. This is from 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 10 through 11. Another passage that emphasizes both the distinction and the unity of the Spirit and the Father. Paul wrote, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So right there. If the Spirit can search the depths of God, we're not talking about a lesser being or a created being or some kind of angel. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person who is in him. Nobody knows everything you're thinking except you. So also, he says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So you can see right there the unity and the distinction. What he's saying in 1 Corinthians 2 is the spirit is God's spirit. So he knows everything that is in God and he communicates that to us. But not only that, he's in you and knows everything about you and communicates that to God. That is perfect Inherent prayer coming from the Spirit. Therefore, check this out. Prayers according to God's will. Something we often stress about. Isn't that true? God, if it's your will, maybe it's your will. I don't know if this... Don't ever let that intimidate you or keep you from praying. Because prayers according to God's will are always being offered up for you. Because the Holy Spirit of God is praying for you. Is he going to get it wrong? He's not going to get it wrong because he not only knows the heart of God and what's best for every situation, he knows your heart and what's best for your situation. Sometimes he'll take your prayer and affirm it and say, yes, Father, this is exactly what they need. Sometimes it's partial. He's like, yes, Lord, that is what they need, but they forgot something. They forgot that they also need the grace to endure this situation. Lord, you're going to deliver them. So hear that prayer. But they don't know that this is going to be a four-year struggle. So help them to endure until the deliverance comes. And sometimes the Holy Spirit of God countermands what you pray for. God, give me this thing. And the Holy Spirit comes in and says, Oh, Lord, they want this so desperately, but they're wrong. It's not what they need. So don't give it to them. Instead, give them what they're really searching for. There are countless people that don't even know God, that are crying out to the Lord, who think they know what they want. And it's no different with us. We think we know what we need, but the Spirit actually does. And in verse 34, it also says, we'll get to it next time, that Jesus 
is interceding for you as well. The amazing, it could, if you could ever have two people pray for you, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit probably right at the top of your list, right? The Bible says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything shall be affirmed. Well, that's my two witnesses. It's like, you know, when you're trying to pick teams. I pick Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's like, hey, that's not fair. It's like, hey, well, I got to pick first, so he picked me, actually. So do you see this? Jesus has not left us alone. You have a constant prayer partner in heaven. So this hope that we talked about last time, well, it's not just something we're looking for one day. Right now, you have the Spirit of God working you through these things. Hope and suffering is not just hope that one day the suffering will end. It is that the Holy Spirit is always interceding for you to make what needs to happen through that suffering happen. It's not just a matter of enduring. Oh, I'm just going to hold on, hold on. Come on, Lord, let this end. Let life end, please. Or just scrambling about looking for God's will. I don't know what he wants us to do. God himself is involved. You very often might feel alone, like, don't worry, God, I'm coming home. God goes, I'm right here with you. I haven't left you. You can't see me, but that's okay. Jesus said it was better to not see Jesus because then the Holy Spirit could come within you. Isn't that better? That's a better way. That's a better helper than even the Spirit, than even Jesus Christ himself. And that's not blasphemous because Jesus said that. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away, that the helper may come. So pray in harmony with the Spirit. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there was a great army coming against Judah. And they sent them this ultimatum. And they said, we're coming for you. And there's not a thing you can do about it. And Jehoshaphat, the king, laid that out before the Lord. And he said, Lord, we don't know what to do. We're powerless and we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12. That's how we pray. Sometimes you know what to pray for. But you don't know all of it. And so you say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is why we say things like, Lord, your will be done, not mine. We pray boldly, but we come to the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what should I pray for in this moment? What should I pray for? Do I pray for them to be healed and saved that way? Or do I pray for them to be broken through that sickness and be saved that way? I don't know. So I'm coming to you and asking for your help. Take the time to get to know the Spirit of God. How do you do that? I, I could spend all day talking about it, but when you read your Bible in the morning and when you pray, are you taking time to be quiet and listen? The Spirit will speak to you. He promised He would speak to you. Read through the book of Acts. The Spirit has lines. The Spirit said, comma, quotation mark. Have you ever heard the Spirit speak to you? You probably have, even if you don't realize it. But you must become familiar with the voice of God. So that you can hear him, because sometimes he'll nudge you. You'll be in prayer, and you'll be passionately pouring out your heart, and then you take a breath, and all of a sudden you feel in your heart, this isn't right. This isn't what I need to be praying for. I need to ask for something else. Or sometimes you'll be praying for something, and you'll even feel tentative and not sure, and just as you, you pray, I don't know, God, maybe, and you'll just be filled with such an amazing confidence. That's the Holy Spirit in you saying, yes, pray for that. Push hard, because that's what the Lord wants to do. Learn to pray in the Spirit. And looking at our main idea today, how certain is your heavenly destiny if the Spirit is paying you that kind of individual attention? If He cares enough for your individual life, all the little things that you think are not worth bringing to God, the Holy Spirit brings those things to God. 
So he's obviously got some kind of serious investment in your life. So don't let the devil come in and say, God doesn't care about you. What has God ever done for you, really? You say, he's given me the Holy Spirit who intercedes for me even right now. Amen? Now let's get to verse 28, maybe the most famous verse in the book of Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if that is true, and the Spirit intercedes for us, then what does that teach us about pain and suffering and difficulty in life? That's what that all things is. You don't worry about, you know, days off and, and summer vacation working together for good. You worry about hard things working together for good. This is, as I said, one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans. Let's break it down. He says, we know. So whatever follows that is a certainty. It's not something that we're hoping for. It's not something that might be true. I hope it is. No, we know. We know that those who love God, that's a great description of a Christian, isn't it? Those who love God. And this is important because this is not just your average basic person. Oh, yes, I love God. We all love God. We're all children. We're all sons and daughters of God. It's like, well, yes and no. God made us all, but you, you're God's wayward prodigal child if you haven't come to Jesus. Those who love God. What does it mean to love God? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, that doesn't sound like love. Oh, it absolutely is love. I love you, Dad, but I'm, I'm going to steal your car and your money and I'm going to, you know, beat my brothers and sisters and then I'm going to run off and never talk to you again. Well, you don't love me. Well, yes, I do. I told you I loved you. Yeah, well, you didn't, you didn't done anything that demonstrates that you love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you say, all right, which commandment? Right? Which one? Well, there's, there's a good answer to that in 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. What does it mean to keep his commandments and love God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I love God, but I don't think we can nail God down to one thing. God already did that. That I've sent you my son, Jesus Christ. I stepped down to save you. It's up to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him for that, to receive what Jesus has done is the ultimate expression of love to God. It's the ultimate, thank you, Lord, believing in Jesus and to love one another. So you can't say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. I just hate people. I've heard Christians say things like that. And they're being funny. All right. But I mean, maybe they are trying to be funny. But let's be real. If you say, I love Jesus, I just hate people. If you come up to me and say, Tyler, I love you, but I hate your wife and I can't stand your kids. You have not just said a nice thing to me, right? Oh, I love Jesus. I just hate his people. And Jesus goes, you know what? That, that doesn't make me feel good. I love those people. And if you hate the things that I love, then what does that say about our relationship? We love one another. Therefore, if you have believed on Jesus and you obey his word, then you are, according to this verse, a lover of God. And the promise I'm about to read is for you. If it's not true of you, then you need to believe on Jesus. He says, all things work together for good. There is a purpose and a hope behind every suffering. All things work together for good. Now, this is the kind of thing everybody likes to just say. I just believe everything's going to work out. 
Everything's for a reason. Everything's, you know, it's all going to work out. Well, I believe that, but what foundation do you have to believe that? You know, this is sort of like that movie Pollyanna. You remember that one? There's something good. There's something happy about everything. But there's no real reason for it. It's just we're going to be happy and we're going to be optimistic because it's better to be that way. Well, that works if you live in a nice place. But what happens if you live in like the, the garbage slums of, of New Delhi or something like that? Don't worry, kid. Everything's going to work out. Kid's like, no, it's not. I'm stuck here. I'm never getting out of here. I'm probably going to die by the time I'm 14 years old. So don't tell me it's all going to work together for good. If you talk about privilege. That's privilege right there, right? Everything is so good and nothing bad has ever really happened to me. So that's probably how it is for everybody. It's not true. So then, how can we say this? Because if you are in Christ Jesus, your pain and your joy both have a purpose. They're building to what's going to happen on that final day. That when you stand before the Lord, you will have been shaped into the image of Christ. And in fact, your sufferings will have pushed you further Closer to Jesus Christ. Whether or not your life has a purpose, whether or not your pain has a reason, will not be known until that final day. I'm going through something terrible. Well, would you rather have a reason and be for something, or do you just want to suffer? The difference is Jesus. This is not just a promise that everything will get better. There are some people that have, don't want anything to do with Jesus, but they love this verse. And they want to talk, oh, yeah, you know, my good karma's coming around. A little pet peeve of Tyler's. Don't use the word karma flippantly. Karma is how they oppress people in India and Nepal and Bangladesh and places like that. They tell the poor people, this is your karma, and if you try to get not poor, you're violating your karma, and you're going to be reborn as something worse. I'm rich because I have good karma, which means I'm a good person. That's why everybody that comes to America and talks about karma are all those rich people that had enough money to leave. Oh, yes, karma's wonderful. So I know when we say it, we usually just mean basically like luck, right? But it bothers me because I've seen how, how that is applied to people. And that's not what this verse is. Oh, yes, you do something good, something good comes back to you. No. The Holy Spirit of God is working your sufferings out to your benefit. That is a very specific Christian idea. If you are in Christ and heaven awaits you, and the Spirit is in you, then everything you go through is simply part of your grand story that God is telling. When we read a story or watch a movie, unless it's one of those really like depressing postmodern kind of movies, it gets real dark and awful in the middle, but we keep watching because we know, all right, how's it going to all come together? That's your life. Everything is just made sweeter when you go through pain as a Christian. Because you look back and say, yeah, we've come past that and through that. Consider Polycarp, right? One of the, one of the most famous early Christian martyrs. He was an old man. And they said, you're, you're sentenced to death, but if you renounce Jesus Christ, I'll let you go. He says, I'm never renouncing Jesus Christ. So they bring him to the arena, that Roman Colosseum that we all talk about and still see today. And they burned him at the stake, but the flames wouldn't burn him, so they killed him with a sword, and so much blood came out that it put out the fire. We think, how horrific. But consider that man's welcome into heaven. You endured your whole life. You went 90-whatever years until you were finally forced to make a choice, and you made the right choice in the moment. So that's just a, we look at that and we go, oh, wonderful, praise the Lord. And you look at Jim Elliott, right? Young man with his young friends. They go down to the Amazon and they're killed immediately. And we say, what a tragedy. You say, no, 
Look how God used that to bring revival to these people living in the jungles there. And the story that has inspired how many missionaries and how many Christians to keep going with their life. That suffering meant something. What was his welcome like when he came into heaven? Lord, I'm sorry. I wish I could have done more. God says, you did everything I needed you to do. I didn't need you to live a long time. I just needed you to do the one thing that I was asking. And we look at that and we go, yeah, absolutely. But what if it's your life? What about your life? What about Jesus' passion? We watch the passion of the Christ. We read the story. This is horrific. They're flogging him and they're beating him and they're making fun of him and they're ripping his beard out. Now they're nailing him to a cross and they're making fun of him while he's hanging there. But we love that story. Why? Because we know that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and that that suffering was for our salvation. Genesis 50, verse 20. Remember the story of Joseph? Sold by his brothers into slavery, wrongfully accused of rape, thrown into prison, raised up out of the prison. Now he's second in command in the whole world. And he tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's really easy to identify this in someone else's life. Well, God's going to work all this out for his glory or the stories of the saints. You, know, you ever read a biography of some great Christian and you're like, come on, when's something going to happen? Oh, he's still preaching. Wonderful. But then you read somebody who's imprisoned or beaten. Oh, now it's getting good, right? But when it comes to our life, like, Lord, I want boring. I want, I want a very boring life where nothing happens to me. But that God's like, no, I got something better for you. Everything you go through, every heartbreak, every job loss, every sickness, every death in your family, even the sins that you commit, while God didn't will them for you, he goes, I'm going to roll that into the story that I'm telling and make something wonderful out on the other side. Problem is, you've got to live in the middle of it. And you've got to be able to have faith that this is the middle of it. And that the end is still coming. When you suffer for Christ, number one, it assures your justification. Because it said, right, we have to suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. So if you suffer with Christ, like the apostles, they said, we rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. It actualizes your sanctification. God uses the pain you go through to make you a better Christian and a better person. Haven't you come out on the other side of some horrible thing and you go, that was awful, that I wouldn't trade anything for those lessons that I learned going through that. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I mean, you, you think about it, it's like, really? You, you, you wouldn't trade the fact that you lost that person you loved or that you lost everything? And you go, well, but look at where I am now. I can't imagine if I hadn't learned all the things I learned now. That's what God's doing. But now stretch that out to your entire life. It's all going to be worth it because number three, it anticipates your glorification. It anticipates, it causes you to look forward that if God's working on me and making every hard thing I go through worthwhile and the Spirit is interceding for me, then He's not going to give up at the last second. If God is enabling me to keep going, then He's surely going to keep going. Doesn't that make your life a grand story with a glorious, happy ending? It's really sad how we lost some of the joy of the Lord in the Christian church. And maybe that has something to do with, you know, the, the culture or the country, like pushing Christians and the church off to the side. I, I get it. But our joy isn't dependent on them. If that was true, man, we'd be in some serious trouble. Like, all right, Lord, with this election is going to determine my joy for the next four years. So that's depressing. Come on. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength, Christian. You hold on to that. It's a, in, a, in one very profound sense, it doesn't matter what happens to me. Because it's all going to redound to God's glory. If you are, as he says, called according to his purpose, then your life is not just drifting from pain to pain or good times to good times. And, you know, we like to joke in my family, or I like to joke, I should say. I'm going to throw them all under the bus. But I like to joke. I said, you know, I like to define my life as looking forward to a trip to Disney World, going to Disney World, or coming out of a trip. And that's like, that's, you know, that's the most fun thing we do as a family. And sometimes we define our lives that way. Like, oh, that was the best thing. Oh, and now I'm in this middle and everything stinks and it's awful and I'm painful and I'm waiting for the next good thing. That's a terrible way to go through life because that means most of it, you're going to be miserable or you're going to be constantly trying to get out of everything that might make you a stronger individual in order to make sure you're comfortable again. There is a reason for your existence. Ephesians 2.10, God has works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 7.17 says, God has a life that he has assigned to you. So don't skip it. Don't try to get out of it. Don't try to duck it every time it gets tough. This is where the story gets good. Therefore, alleviation of pain is not our goal, but fulfillment of our God-given purpose. To use that Jim Elliott illustration again, if he had done everything possible to avoid being killed that day, now he might have lived longer, but God had something for him. This is what I've called you to. All this preparation you thought was for something else, it was really just for this. You don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what the whole plan is. So don't spend your whole life panicking and freaking out, and I serve God when things are good, but when I'm suffering, I get real angry at God. I put my finger in his face and demand that he fix it right away or I'm not doing anything else. Because you know what? We also catch a glimpse of this even while we're alive. We're talking about heaven. Mostly verse 28 is talking about when we get to heaven. But you also get to see this in your life. Haven't you had little like episodes of your life where you come through it and you come out the other side and say, okay, that was, that was for my good. That was all for my good. That, that horrible time that I went through. So how certain then is your destiny? when even the hard times of life are being shaped for God's glory and God's good. You say, well, this is so hard, but I come out the other side and I realize, wow, that was all God's purpose. He was working on me through that. Then your destiny is certain. You're not just hoping with no chance of it being fulfilled. You're seeing the assurance of it every day. So to get into verse 29 through 30, let's see if we have time to do all of this. Four. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So coming off that line about being called, he's going to springboard off of that. And he's going to talk about God's sovereign hand in salvation. This little passage here has been called the golden chain of salvation before uh, with these five links, these five things that God does, summarizing what God had planned for his people. And there are, of course, here the word predestined and everybody in the church sits up like, all right, here we go. There are differences of opinion over how to explain and understand this. I think as Calvary Chapel, what we ought to do and what we usually do is you preach it in context. 
right? We're going to give it the emphasis that it deserves and the emphasis that Paul intended when he wrote it and that the Lord intended when he wrote it. But I, I do think that sometimes these verses can be used to say, therefore, everything we've read so far about putting to death what is earthly in you and striving after the Lord and every call to faith doesn't matter. Now, I don't think you can do that either. What Paul is doing is he's trying to show us God's work in salvation. You have a responsibility to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You all know that. But Paul's like, let me step back a minute, take you completely out of the picture and just show you what God has done. So... Let's look at this. Number one, he says, he foreknew. Prognosco, very simple word. It just means to know beforehand. In fact, it's translated in the book of Acts one time. You already knew this. You knew this ahead of time. I'm not surprising you with this knowledge. Well, God, of course, is omniscient. He knows all things. And he knew you and me before we were even born. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knew you were going to exist before you existed. That's pretty basic, isn't it? God knew that. He knew every one of your days. To which you might go, oh, <laughs> he knew every one of my days? I can think of a couple days I really wish he didn't know. But you know what? He knew all of that. And the question becomes, what did he foreknow, right? Did he know who was going to receive him ahead of time? Did he know just in a general term? I think there's a relationship aspect to it well as well. I think it's obvious that the Lord knew which ones were going to receive him. But I don't think that Paul is explicitly trying to make either of those points. The only point is, he knew you ahead of time. And number two, he predestined. Loaded word. But a joyful one if you're in Christ Jesus. Do you believe in predestination? Well, it's right there. It says predestined. So the question is not do you, but how do we properly understand it in relation to the rest of Scripture? We're going to spend a lot more time talking about all these issues when we get to chapter 9, but we'll, we'll you know, mention a few things here. He predestined. He assigned our destiny ahead of time. Ephesians 1 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God saw you ahead of time and decided to choose you. You go, why? <laughs> I know me and I wouldn't even choose me. Everybody I've ever known, most of them wouldn't choose me. I've talked to a lot of, a lot of girls, a lot of guys, and none of them have cho chosen me. But why would God choose me? He says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to save you, to keep you out of hell. He knew ahead of time what you were going to be. And he says, I've got to do something. So he chose us, predestined us. Specifically there, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. God wanted to take you in your frailty and in your sin and do whatever it takes to make you more like Jesus in the soul and in the body. This is the process that we're going through right now, that being conformed to the image of his son. That as you go through suffering, Ephesians 4 talks about this a lot. As you go through life, as you go through struggles, even as you go through victory, God is using it to shape you, to look less like your old self that you don't even like to think about sometimes. You ever like lie awake at bed and you think about something you did 20 years ago? You go, oh man, I'm still cringing about that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I went there. And the Lord, yeah, I want to take that and I want to shape that person to be like Jesus. 
If you are in Christ, the Lord wants to make you look more like Christ. And therefore, those whom he had predestined third, he also called. This is what we call prevenient grace, that before you ever got saved, God was already working on you. And we all know that to be true. We all tell our testimonies and we go, well, I look back on it now and it's pretty obvious what God was doing. But at the time, I didn't realize it. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I love that verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you. If you start giving your testimony and start bragging about how I finally figured out the truth, I I doubt whether you're really saved. I see people like this all the time. You know, I'm coming to the conclusion that I believe Jesus was, in fact, everything he said he was. And the Bible is, in fact, the word of God. So I, I believe I'm finally beginning to grasp and understand this. I'm like, I don't think you have. Because it's not about what you can figure out. You haven't been broken yet. You haven't been chosen yet. You all have a story about how God chose us. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is with us. He's always drawing us to Jesus. God knows all people. And 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, He's not willing that any should perish. Jesus said, when the Son of Man is raised up, He will draw all men to Himself. There is a universal call to salvation, but here's the truth that this passage is emphasizing. Not everybody hears that call. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, Many are called, but few are chosen. That's why we don't preach the gospel to certain people. Because we preach it to all of them. Because the Lord goes... I've got some people that I'm saving. Go get them. Which ones, Lord? He goes, hopefully all of them. So preach the gospel to every creature, he said. He called. Fourth, he also justified those he called. That is, he declared them righteous. We've talked about this at length. The moment of salvation and regeneration. That wasn't the beginning. That was maybe somewhere near the end of Act 1, where God was working on you, seeing you ahead of time, predestining you, calling you, drawing you, and then you get saved. And this is the first time you're awake to what's been going on, but that doesn't mean that it's the beginning of your story. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are counted righteous once and for all. When you say, God, I need Jesus' death to count for mine. I renounce my old life. I'm going to start a new one following you. God goes, righteous. You're not righteous. Did you know that? You're not. You are not perfect. Well, I I, I might not be perfect, but I think I might be righteous. Not in God's eyes, because God is perfect. I don't know why Christians always say everybody's a sinner, because everybody sins. If you, are, if you have sinned, you are a sinner. Well, I don't think it's helpful to define people that way. It's absolutely helpful to define people that way, because otherwise, what are we going to do about this? Ignoring problems never helps. Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed that sweeping things under the rug doesn't make them go away? We ought not to skip over the fact either that this justification, that one word that we just kind of can gloss over, embedded in that is the fact that God had to send his only son Jesus to die on the cross and shed his blood. What did it cost to save you? God had to pay the penalty for your sin. God is a good judge. He can't just let murderers go away free. So he had to pay for it. But he said, how about this? I'll pay for it. I'll shed the blood of my son so that you don't have to. That's what it costs to justify us. And then fifth, he also glorified them, which is interesting because glorified is past tense, but we know that glorification is yet future. You're not glorified yet. 
But God thinks that it is so certain and so sure, he can talk about it as if it's already happened. Do you notice, by the way, he jumps straight from justified to glorified? He skips sanctified. He skips the right now nature of salvation. Why is he doing that? Because remember, he's trying to encourage us. He's trying to encourage us to hold on to hope. He said, because if God has already done step one, two, three, four, he's going to do step five. So step four B, you might call it, is not so significant in the grand scheme of things. Now we just came off of long chapters of telling us to walk in obedience and holiness. But what he's saying is if you've been justified, you can have certain assurance that you will be glorified. So wonderful because we obsess over the right now of salvation rather than looking at what God has done and looking forward to what he will do. But Paul, I think, intentionally skips over the right now and just says, if Jesus died on the cross and you've got your faith in Jesus, what, is, is the blood of Jesus not enough for you? Oh, I'm just a terrible person. So was Paul. Paul was a, a religious terrorist, dragging people away from other countries back to Jerusalem where they could be killed like Stephen was. That's not a good dude. But he's been justified and glorified. So are you, if you are in Christ Jesus. Now you might say, why would God do that? Why would God do that for me? Why would God send Jesus Christ to die for me? But that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, look back to that word he said about Jesus being the firstborn. In order that, purpose statement, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, to be firstborn means to be first in rank, obviously. It also means the fact that he was first to rise from the dead. But also, here, being firstborn among many brothers implies that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so will many others be born again. So what is God doing? He's adopting children. We've talked about this a few weeks ago, right? That we are sons and daughters of God. Why would he send Jesus to die on the cross? Because God did it for family. God was creating a family for himself. Out of the people that had rebelled and cursed his name, that were burdened under sin, God goes, these are going to be my children. I'm going to bring them into my house. There's one only begotten son, but there's countless untold myriads of adopted sons and daughters of God. That's why he did it. It was love, Christian. It was love for you. Uh, you can get all, all cynical and, and clinical about salvation. Well, you know, the glory of God, and, and he wanted to, you know, he was going to make sure that he had enough people so that he could have. He loved you. He was desperate to have you. Does that make you great? No, it makes him great. It makes him wonderful. Jesus saw Jerusalem and wept over it. He saw Lazarus in the grave and he wept. He was in the garden of Gethsemane sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He didn't want to go to the cross. Would you? I wouldn't want to go to a cross. But he said, I'll do it if it means this is the only way to bring them to us, Lord. Hebrews 12, 2 said, we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Why would he go through the cross? The joy set before him. What joy was that? It's you and it's me. That he would no longer be the only son of God, but that he would be there with countless adopted brothers and sisters. You and me. 
loved by God. God loves you with an everlasting love. Do you know that? The Spirit dwells within you as an individual and brings your petty little needs to God because He loves you. You might say, no one's ever cared for me. No one's ever loved me. You're wrong. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what he said on the cross. Not, Lord, strike down these godless men that have taken your beloved, your anointed. He said, they don't know, Lord, forgive them. For you. God knew you. He foreknew you. And he loved you. So he predestined you. He chose you to be saved. He sent his son to die for you and sent his spirit to call you to himself. He justified you. He saved you. And now he's working out his will until the day when you will be glorified. But God says, that is so certain. I can talk about it like it's already happened. That was God's plan, beginning before time. We already read in Ephesians 1, it was before the foundations of the world were laid, God had chosen to save you. So let me ask, how certain is your destiny? The answer is real certain. How certain is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How certain is the return? Because God is the one making sure it will happen. Every twist and turn of your life, every heartache, every pain and sickness has a purpose that is for your good. Because God is conforming you to the image of Christ every day, which will be completed on that final day. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Is it up to you to bring it to completion? No, it wasn't up to you to start this process, was it? Does God say, all right, I got you started, now you finish? No. No. He says, I got this. Even now, the Spirit is praying for you and giving you just what you need. Even when you think you need something else, He says, no, Lord, this is what they need. Your life, therefore, is an unfolding story that every down is going to be minimized and glorified by the height that God is going to raise you on that final day. And that leads to great joy that even as you suffer, even as we walk through the pandemic and turbulent times, even as you walk through the breakup of your family, even as you walk through your job falling to pieces, even as you walk through anything, you've got joy because you said, this is just part of the story God is telling. You have hope that at the end of this life, I'm going to be with Jesus. Christians don't grieve like other people grieve. We don't grieve like others do because we know they just went on to be with the Lord. They finished their race. That perspective was bought at the precious cost of Jesus' blood. But can I tell you this now? If you've never been saved, this is not true of you. If you've never been saved, your, your suffering will have no purpose. You'll suffer now in rebellion to God, and then you will stand before God and he'll say, you're a rebel. I don't know you. And you can't say, well, if I wasn't predestined, I, listen, you're, being, you're hearing the call right now. This, me talking to you, is the call of God going out on your life right now. And let me tell you something. You're in a dangerous position if you're sitting in this room and you've never believed on Jesus Christ. Because you can no longer say, no one ever told me. Because I'm telling you right now. That is why the word says it is a fragrance for some from life to life and others from death to death. But this could be your day. This could be your day. 
We're never going to know until that final day who was a wheat and who was a tear. Matthew 13, who was the good fish, who was the bad fish? The Lord's going to sort all that out. And you can say, how do I know I'm one of the I'm one of the predestined? How do I know I'm one of the called? First of all, unsaved people don't worry about things like that. But second of all, the word tells you in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. Are you sure you're saved? You've been in church your whole life. I don't care. Are you born again? Lots of horrible people go to church every Sunday. Don't want anything to do with Jesus. They go to church on Sunday and they go home and they open up their magic books and they say they're incantations for the week. I'm not making that up. That's a real example that I know of. Are you sure you're saved? You're trying to scare me? Well, if you need to be. All of this can be true of you. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, your life is, is an unending tragedy or it's an impending one. But in Christ, everything works for your good because the Holy Spirit who is in you sees to it. Don't let another day go by without knowing that your destiny is certain. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved and the Spirit will come within you. He'll jumpstart your heart with a defibrillator, and all of a sudden your soul will be alive again, and your conscience will be awakened, and you'll start to realize, I can't keep doing all this stuff. And the Spirit will begin to draw you to Jesus and shape you to look more like Christ. And years will go by, and you'll realize, I'm not the same person anymore. And your suffering will start to have a purpose and a reason, and you'll get closer to God and know His Word and know His Spirit. And then when you die, you will see Jesus face to face, and it will all have been worth it. Do you think any person who ever died prematurely in Christ would come back if they could? No way. They say, I'm, I'm good right where I am. I'm not minimizing your suffering. I'm trying to tell you what your suffering means. It means that you're being changed forever into the glory of Jesus. And that if you are going through that process, then your destiny is certain. Certain.